0: We're going to stick with Philippians for this closing talk, which I hope will be something of an encouragement and motivation to us in the exercise that we've been thinking about today. So I'm sticking with Philippians and uh, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7-7 to 14 and this is the New American Standard Version but whatever things were gained to me those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ more than that I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The pursuit of Christ is our closing subject. And this is teaching what we've studied. That's the idea of this. And so that's why I've just distributed a worked example of arcing. I'm not going to go into this in any detail. This is really for you to take away. If it's something that interests you, have a look at it. Um, By all means, challenge my arcing. I'd love to hear um, how you differ in terms of how you would relate the clauses. But there's just one thing that I want you to observe from this because this is about teaching what we've studied. I want to just show you how that the way way I study, the manner of my study, then informs my preaching. And the one thing I want you to notice from this is the three main arcs. So I've ended up, lots of sub-arcs of course, but I've ended up with two main red arcs at the top. And if you've got good eyesight, you'll be able to read the little codes AC and PER stands for action and purpose and then the bottom arc, the orange arc with the little code CSV stands for concessive. Three main arcs because we've got three main paragraphs of text and those three things tell us about an action which results in a purpose, an action rather with an intended purpose and then a concessive paragraph A concessive statement. That is a contrary but supporting statement. And in that last paragraph Paul's telling us about something that he hasn't done yet. But it supports what he's doing above. So action, purpose and then concessive statement. So three main groupings is what my arcing exercise has led me to. I said that informs my preaching. And you'll see why. And that is because... I've got three headings for you in terms of teaching this now, this afternoon. And those three arcs give us these three headings preparation, prize, and pursuit. That's how the subject breaks up, as I see it. The preparation, there we're concerned with the mindset, the mindset of the athlete, what Paul has done to prepare himself for the race. The prize, that's the goal, the goal of the athlete. That's why Paul's running the race, that's what motivates him. And then finally the pursuit, and that's the action of the athlete. That's Paul coming to his butt, and his butt is, I haven't finished yet. I've not yet won the prize, I've not yet got to the end, so there's something I'm doing, and that's the pursuit. So preparation, prize, and pursuit. So we go to the mind first of all. Preparation, the mindset of the athlete. What Paul has done to prepare himself for the race. We started today by thinking about setting our heart. And we're ending the day thinking about setting our mind. And the context here is that of the athlete. That's the picture that Paul is presenting, I believe... In these paragraphs that we've highlighted for study this evening, that's the picture that Paul is presenting to the Philippian church. It's the picture of an athlete preparing to run. Any athlete knows the importance of mental strength and of discipline, both in preparation for and in execution of the big race. And sometimes there has to be a revaluation of things for an athlete. A revaluation of things. A discarding of things perhaps that were previously enjoyed but now have to be set aside, avoided if the athlete is to be successful. And the Christian pursuit is to be no different. And so Paul begins with the mind. He begins with the mindset. I've chosen this passage tonight This passage has to do with pursuit and with striving and with running the race. Because I want it just to be an encouragement to us in the matter of the study of God's word. I'm a runner and I gather that one or two of you are as well. And so I know a little bit about preparing to run and a little bit about uh, the physical aspects of setting certain things aside. Um, my wife actually recently bought me for my birthday one of these nice running watches and that's a great motivational device because that's always pushing me whenever I'm running to better my previous run to achieve a personal best if you like and I want us to think about that in relation to God's word in relation to the study of God's word we said earlier that we're not all at the same level and we're not all going to come at this in the same way because There's different levels of ability among us. But we're going to want to do our best, aren't we? We're going to want to do our best. We're going to strive to better each time to achieve a PB in the matter of the study of God's word. And it starts with setting the mind. Paul had to completely reverse his values, completely change his values in preparation for the race. And so he starts off in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, whatever things were gained to me, what's he talking about? What are the whatever things of verse 7? Well, the but at the start of that verse gives us a clue. He's been talking about the whatever things previously, and he's now about to give the alternative. So we have to just back up a couple of verses to find out what these whatever things, the things that were previously valuable to him, were. And we find the answer in verse five. He says, "Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to Zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." Those are the whatever things, the whatever things that he's talking about that were gained to him. There is old values. And we've got another little picture here that Paul is giving. To the Philippians. And I suggest to you that it's a picture of a balance sheet. A ledger. And on one side he's got profit. And on the other side he's got loss. And in the profit column. Paul would have had these things. He would have had his ethnic pedigree. He says I'm an Israelite. I'm a thoroughbred child of Abraham. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He's got his social standing. He says, I'm a Pharisee. I belong to the upper echelon of law keepers. He's got his notable achievements. He says, I persecuted the church. Even among the Pharisees. Here was one whose zeal was second to none. Persecuting those he believed to be the enemies of God. The church. And lastly, in the prophet column, he's got his morality. Morality. Blameless, or so he thought, as to the keeping of the law of Moses. In short, these things, in Paul's prophet column, amount to human glory, don't they? This was Paul's life. This is what gave him meaning, significance, assurance, moral pride. This was his gain, his fortune, his joy. It was his justification. Justification by works. And what about the lost column of Paul's balance sheet? In the lost column he's got Christ. And probably also he's got the apostles. And the church and the gospel. Anything which undermined and posed a threat to his belief in justification by works. So that's the context That's the historical context. But then things change, don't they? Because Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That word counted means to command oneself, to lead oneself, to settle the mind. That's what Paul's doing. He's settling his mind in the matter. The tense of that verb shows us that this is something that happened. And I believe this is something that happened on the Damascus Road. Because he met Christ Jesus. He met the Son of the Living God. And things changed for him. There was a revaluation. And at that point he settled his mind. It's as if he took a big red pen his balance sheet and in the loss column he struck loss out and he wrote profit and he's boiled it down in the loss column there's just one name now it's Christ and it's no longer loss, it's profit and in the other column he crosses profit out and he replaces it with the word loss All those things that were previously gained to him, whatever things were gained to him, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But he goes on, verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be loss and count them but rubbish. Paul started with his highest achievements, but he realises that doesn't go far enough. And so he adds to the lost column all things. That's everything aside from Christ. All things. And he brings us right up to the minute now because he flips from the past tense into the present tense. And he says, I count, I count all things as lost. Present tense. That initial revaluation took place on the Damascus Road. But now he's talking about the present. He's talking about a daily exercise whereby he settles his mind in relation to all things, regarding them as loss. Anything that by worldly standards might be regarded as value, he regards it as liability, as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, he uses a stronger term than that. He says, I count them but rubbish. The word is dung. I count them but dung. You know, I got, I'll share this funny story with you. I got um, a new car not too long ago. And um, it was on its first outing to the remembrance, actually. Proudly drove it out that week to the remembrance. And it was a sister that came to me afterwards and pointed out, I hadn't spotted it, that the registration plate read D-U-N-G, (laughs) dung. And it's since been known as the dungmobile. Well, I think I probably needed to hear that that week. And you know what? That registration plate now is a continual reminder to me that I need to count daily these things as loss, as done for the sake of Christ. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. You see, the preparation of the mind was a prerequisite for something altogether practical. It was a prerequisite for suffering that would follow. Sometimes we hear the expression, don't we? No pain, no gain. And maybe that's true for the athlete. It's certainly true for the Christian, I think. In order to gain the prize, for Paul, this went further than just resetting his mind. Paul actually suffered the loss of all things. You say, well, how is that? How did that happen? Give us us the historical context. And what did the Philippians understand about this? When he said to them, I've suffered the loss of all things, what would they have understood by that? Well, we've encountered that, haven't we, in our study this afternoon. Because we've made note of the fact that Paul writes this very letter from his prison cell. And the Philippians knew that too because they'd sent Epaphroditus to him with a gift. In truth, Paul had lost all of the benefits and comforts of normal life. Not only the respect and the privileges that would have been his as a Pharisee, but even his ability to move freely as he pleased. He'd suffered. He'd suffered the loss of all things. And he was ready to suffer. This is the point, this is the application for us. Paul was ready to suffer because he'd mentally prepared, because he'd already written these things off as loss in his mind. (coughs) Isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ meant in Luke 14 and 33 when he said, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. You know, you and I may not be called to suffer the loss of our reputation, our esteem, our job, our money, our family, our friends, our health. We may not be, we may be, but we may not be. But if we are, you know, we'll only be prepared to suffer it if we've first done the settling in our mind. If we've first written these things off as loss, counted them as done for the sake of Christ. So that's how Paul prepared his mind. Now we move on to why he prepared his mind. The goal. What was the purpose behind it? It was because he was after the prize. Paul was very purposeful. In all of this he was purposeful. He had his eye on the goal. He wanted to win the prize. Why? Because he valued it more highly than anything. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's like the man in the parable, isn't he? Like the man in the parable who, finding a treasure in a field. He goes and sells all he has in order that he might buy that field. That's what Paul's like. Let's look at the purpose then. And the so that, at the end of verse 8... Leads us into the purpose. Leads us into the gaining of the prize. Verse 14 talks about it, of course, as a prize. Verse 14 describes it there as the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I think that there are three limbs. Three parts to the prize, if you like. Three parts to the purpose for Paul settling his mind and running this race. And they are that I may gain Christ. Number two, that I may be found in Christ. And number three, that I may know Christ. So first of all, verse eight. So that I may gain Christ. Paul alluded to this in verse seven when he says for the sake of Christ. I think that means a similar thing, really. But now he spells it out. He says, I want to gain Christ. I want to get him. I want to win him. What on earth is Paul saying? Hasn't he already got Christ? Wasn't that the point of the Damascus Road experience? A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, says this. He says, how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to centre upon the initial act of accepting Christ. And we're not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We've been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we've found him, we need no more seek him. Toza was rejecting what he called a false A spurious logic, namely that if you've found God in Christ, you no longer need to seek after him. And he says, no, he says, that's not it at all. If we've had an experience of grace in our lives, we'll crave more grace. We'll thirst for more grace. The experience of of grace creates the desire for more grace. And so we pursue The giver. And so it was for Paul. Just like David. And Moses before him. He thirsted. For more of God. And for more of Christ. He wanted to gain Christ. For to me. To live. Is Christ. And to die. Is gain. And ultimately the desire. For more of Christ would be fully realised for Paul in death. Because in life he says, I'm Christ's. But in death, Christ is mine. By the way, don't confuse Philippians 1 and 21 with the balance sheet exercise that we've just been talking about. I don't think Paul is saying in this verse that living is loss and dying is gain. Because he's saying that living is Christ and Christ is gain. So living must be gain. Living must be profitable if it's about appropriating Christ. And in fact, he makes that clear in verse 22 of chapter 1 when he goes on and he says, If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labour for me. And I don't know which to choose. So he's not saying that living is loss. Living was gain for him. As much as living for him was about appropriating Christ. Gaining more of Christ. But death was the ultimate gain. Because in death he'd get an eternity's worth of Christ. Paul's concerned here I think ultimately then with future purpose. And I think the context of the letter to the Philippians uh, gives us that too. Because Paul has... The return of Christ in view in this letter. Three times in this letter he refers to the day of Christ. The day of Christ. And I take that to be the day that the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the air for his church. What we call the rapture. And Paul is running that on that day he might win Christ. That he might gain Christ. That's the prize that's described in verse 14 too. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's looking to that day, the day of Christ. And that's the prize for the winner, he says. That's the prize for the victor. And so he runs to win. He wants that call. He wants to attain to the resurrection from the dead, verse 11. And here in verse 8, he wants to gain Christ. So that's the first limb. Secondly, he wants to be found in him. That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. To be found in him means to be seen in him, to be perceived in him, to be judged in him. Who's doing the judging? Well, the context makes it clear. Because Paul explains that little phrase to be found in him. He explains it in the next two clauses. One of them's positive and one of them's And they both assert the same thing. He says, being found in Christ is all about this. It's about having a righteousness which comes from God. And thus the flip side of it is it's not about having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law. So Paul again, I think, has got his eye. On judgment day. He's got his eye on the day of Christ. And this is all about justification. Being found in him is all about justification. And Paul's saying, I don't want to appear before the throne on that day with a righteousness of my own. Derived from the law. Like filthy rags. I want to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. I want to be found in him. Now again you say, hold on a minute. Why is Paul counting all things lost and suffering the loss of all things and striving to be found in Christ? Why is he talking about winning Christ? Why is he talking about attaining to the resurrection from the dead? That all sounds a little bit like justification by works, doesn't it? And yet he's absolutely clear in this verse, in verse 9, The justification is on the basis of faith alone. It's not a justification by works derived from the law that he's seeking. That's how he puts it to the Corinthian church as well. When he said to them, but by his doing, are you in Christ Jesus? So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well we can't cut the knot of this problem As we were thinking earlier We can't say well Paul's just contradicting himself So we've got to reason it out Haven't we And I think it goes a little bit like this If Paul is saying That justification Is by faith alone And if he's also Esteeming the world and everything in it as rubbish and pursuing Christ as his great treasure in order to receive the benefits of justification, then can't we conclude that genuine saving faith, the sort of faith that results in justification is the faith which pursues Christ at the expense of all earthly treasure? The pursuit of Christ, then, is the assurance of genuine faith. It's the evidence of genuine faith by which we're justified. At the end of the first chapter of the letter, Paul exhorts the Philippians that they might live worthily of the gospel of Christ. And he says to them, that'll be a sign. That'll be a sign for you of your salvation. It'll be a sign to others of their destruction, but it'll be a sign to you of your salvation. It'll be the evidence, the assurance of your salvation. And now he's telling them what such a worthy life is all about. He's telling them that that worthy life is a life that's consumed by the pursuit of Christ. So he wants to gain him. He wants to be found in him. And lastly, he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul now jumps, I think, from uh, future to present purpose. He wants to know Christ. That's personal, relational knowledge, not mere academic head knowledge. And he values it above all things, above all the world's supplies for enjoyment. And that's why he can write loss above all the things in the world. It's because he's esteemed this thing more valuable than anything else. Again, he said, didn't Paul already know him? Yes, he did. But he wants to know him intimately. He recognises that the sort of intimacy that he strives for is obtained through suffering. It's true, isn't it? We come to know Christ better as we share his sufferings. It's through suffering, Paul says, that we enter into a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. I was struck recently in my devotional reading by the example of the blind man of John 10 who, having washed in the pool of Siloam to cleanse himself of the the clay mask that the Lord has applied to his eyes, receives his sight. And it's at that point that he's approached by his neighbours. And they want to know where Jesus is. And so they say to him, where is he? And the blind man says, I don't know. I don't know where he is. The man's been saved, I believe. He had genuine saving faith that resulted in his healing, but he didn't know the whereabouts of his saviour. But you know, then an amazing thing starts to happen because he starts to suffer. And he bears testimony to Jesus first as a prophet, then to him as one sent from God. And finally, he calls himself a disciple. And as a result of that, he suffers. We read that he's excommunicated. He's put out of the synagogue. And you know, there's a very precious thing because at that moment, we read that Jesus finds him again. Jesus found the man again. And it's in that moment of suffering that the man acknowledges Jesus as Lord. And he comes to an appreciation of him as the son of man. He's going deeper. He's becoming more intimate in his relationship with his saviour. And it's on account of suffering. How much more there is for us to know, isn't there? How much more there is for us to know of the saviour. Paul speaks elsewhere of knowing the love of Christ Which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the point isn't it? There's so much of Christ yet to be known. And we'll know more as we suffer. Some have seen a cycle here. And it appeals to me too. In verses 10 and 11 we seem to have a cycle of resurrection. Suffering. Death. And again resurrection. Paul wanted to know Christ so intimately that he might participate in the power of his resurrection. That is, that he might experience the power which God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he sees suffering as a prerequisite to the experience of that power. You know, suffering, the same word that's used here as it's used in the New Testament, is often connected with glory. Peter talks about the sufferings of Christ. And the glories to follow. And Paul seems to connect the same things here. And so he wants to experience suffering. He wants to experience a joint participation. Fellowship. Joint participation in the external afflictions of Christ. That's his sufferings. In order that he might know the power of Christ. In his life, yes. But ultimately, looking again to the day of Christ. In attaining To the resurrection from the dead. and What does he mean by joint participation? What does he mean by fellowship in his sufferings? Again the answer is in the text. He tells us it's by. By being conformed to his death. In order that somehow he might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That Greek word conform is the word sumorpho sumorpho, And it's based on the word morphe, which we had before us in our study earlier in Philippians 2. And there we saw that that word morphe had to do with real essence, real essence rather than external form. So Christ being in essence God became in essence like a bondservant. And now Paul strives to become, in essence, like Christ in his death. It's the essence of his death that he's been expounding in chapter 2, that we've been enjoying together this afternoon. It was that humble, self-sacrificial, obedient death. That's what Paul is striving to be conformed to. The Lord Jesus Christ lost his life, in order that we might find life. And so Paul's saying, I must lead a life which is all about serving others, at cost, at cost to myself. He's not talking necessarily about facing crucifixion. He's not saying that. It's not the external appearance of death. It's the essence of that death. He's saying, I'll lose my life, all of my rights, privileges, comforts, everything else, for the benefit of others, that I might be conformed, I might be like Christ in the essence of his death and he urges us to do the same and to do it with rejoicing to do it with rejoicing why? because he's got another confirmation or transformation in view the same word, Philippians 3 and verse 21 we eagerly wait a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory We're to have the same form as his body of glory. Not the same appearance, but the same essence. Eternal, incorruptible. That's what lies ahead of us. And so Paul's saying, how can I expect to share in that if I'm not prepared to share in his death? For resurrection to take place logically, there has to be a death. And Paul wants to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, if it were possible, if it might be possible... He knows it's by faith alone, but he presses on as if it might be possible to attain it. He wants to do all he can, and so he wants to be conformed to the self-sacrificial, humble, obedient death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to skip a little bit on account of time. I can't really skip that, can I? We skipped we skipped verse 8 and we've got to go back to it because it's linked to this matter of knowledge. In verse 8 he talked about the surpassing value of knowing Christ. The surpassing value of knowing Christ. Just one point for you to take away and think about that I was going to bring out of that. Most link that to the same personal knowledge that we've been thinking about in verses 10 and 11. I just wanted to refer back to Our earlier talk, when we were thinking about the learning of Christ, how Christ Himself humbled Himself to become a student of the Word. And it appeals to me that that little phrase, the knowledge of Christ, can also mean not just our knowledge of Christ, but Christ's knowledge, the knowledge that He grew in in His manhood. And that's something to attain to, isn't it? The personal knowledge that He had, tremendous knowledge, knowledge like no other, of His Father. And of his word, and of his purposes for men in his word. That's something to aspire to, isn't it? In view of the surpassing knowledge of Christ. We aspire to that, don't we? That's the prize. That we may gain him, that we may be found in him, that we may know him. It brings us finally to the pursuit. The action of the athlete. And this is what Paul still needs to do because he recognises that he's still in the race and he's not finished yet. He says, Not that I've already obtained. Not that that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. And again in verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Verse 12 begins with a big but. He's prepared in order to win the prize, but he's not finished. He's yet to lay hold of it. That is, to take possession of it. I think there's some application for us here too. And I ask myself and I ask you the question, do we have the same critical view of our progress in this pursuit of Christ as Paul did? That's what we get, you know, when we come to the mirror of God's word. That's what we should get. We get a realisation that we've not arrived yet. That there's more to do. And that's what Paul comes to in verse 12. He goes on, but I press on, but I press on. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's only one thing open to him because he's made an assessment of his race in the mirror of the word of God and he realises he's not arrived yet. There's only one thing open to him. One thing I do. Single-mindedness. That's the athlete, isn't it? That we were talking about earlier again. The single-mindedness of the athlete. He sees it two ways again. Positively and negatively. He willfully empties his mind of the things that are behind. The things he's lost, the things he's written off. And the suffering that went on account of that too. The pain and the injury it's caused him. And perhaps even the wobbles that he's had en route in the race he puts all that behind him he puts it out of his mind and he stretches himself out to reach what lies ahead his vision is fixed on the goal that word literally means the mark the mark in the distance and we've thought of the ultimate mark haven't we the day of Christ was what he was focused on and he dare not be distracted by anything else around him so too we stretch out don't we for what lies ahead We get to the goal by planning, by discipline, by self-denial. And again, I just ask the question, are we going to set ourselves any goals? We too have the same ultimate goal as Paul, don't we? With the day of Christ in mind. But you know, we can set ourselves some milestones in between
1: here and there.
0: And are we going to do that as a result of today? What about in the matter of the study of God's word? Are we going to set ourselves some goals? And are we going to pursue them with all our might and strive To exceed them. Now this is where we finish. So that I may lay hold. Of that for which also. I was laid hold of. By Christ Jesus. We finish with the assurance. The assurance that underpins Paul's race. Because both the preparation. And the pursuit are founded on this. Paul strives to lay hold of the prize because Christ Jesus has already laid hold of him. Perhaps the best commentary on Philippians 3 and 12 is the verse that we had before is in our study this afternoon, Philippians 2 and 12. And I'd add to that verse 13 as well. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. Go hard after Christ because Christ is at work in you. And we'd add perhaps to that Philippians 1 and 6 as well. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say if he's laid hold of us, We no longer need to press to lay hold of him. He reasons exactly the opposite. He says, I press on to gain Christ because he's already gained me. This is what Tozer was talking about. This is the irresistible grace of Christ. Overcoming Paul's rebellion and saving him from sin didn't make Paul passive. It made him pursue. It made him pursue. So Paul puts the pursuit of Christ Into the context of absolute assurance. But he doesn't say I coast. He doesn't say I drift. He says Christ is too precious for that. So he says I press on. I strive. I reach. I long. I ache. I yearn to obtain the fullness and perfection of the knowledge of Christ. Why? Because I don't know if I'm his? Because I don't know if I'm going to make it? No. It's because he has already made me his own. It's because he's already taken possession of me. And so again, by pursuing him, I have the evidence and the assurance of my faith. The assurance that I'm his. The assurance that he's already taken possession of me. I reach for him because I'm held by him. I press on to him because he's taken possession of me and he's secured me in unbreakable Bands of love. And so the application for us is this, I think. That the most fundamental reason why we must press on, we must pursue Christ, is that Christ is in you, moving you to press on after him. It's as if God has already ordained that we win this prize. God has already said that we're going to get the prize. And so compelled by that grace, we've got to run after it. We've got to strive that we might win it. And so in summary, we prepare our minds, don't we? We're going to settle this thing in our minds. We're going to count all as lost and prepare to suffer all as lost if necessary. Why? That we might win the prize. That we might gain Christ, our one chief treasure. And recognising that we've not yet arrived. But that he himself started the work in us. And will bring it to completion. We pursue him. We pursue him. With all our might. May God bless his word.